Have you ever asked a question of an Appalachian? Like a true born and bred in the holler, raised in the hills, running with wolves Appalachian? You'll never get a simple, direct answer. There's always a story. You may ask how, but the answer will also tell you why. Much like a proverbial journey, how you get to an answer is just as important as the answer itself. So when you ask if there is magic in these hills, the answer is a bit more complicated than yes or no. There's a lot of gray area and nuance. Even then, it may depend on who you ask. I'm your host Jason, and you're listening to the Esoteric Book Club. Goblins! This episode we are talking about Backwoods Witchcraft by Jake Richards, Conjure and Folk Magic from Appalachia. Before we get started though, I want to greet all my new listeners. The Esoteric Book Club has gone international. In addition to the United States, I now have audience members in the UK, Spain, Canada, and even one person in Colombia. Welcome weirdos, I'm glad to have you. Most of the time, when you hear about the practice of conjure, it's usually defined as Southern Conjure, but really, that refers to a very specific practice or group of practices. When you talk about Appalachian Conjure, the techniques and methodology change just a little bit. Southern Conjure is heavily influenced by West African tradition due to the slave trade. While slavery was a national practice in the United States until 1863, it was more concentrated in the South, which relied heavily upon captive workforces. In the Appalachians, which stretch from eastern Canada all the way to Alabama, a variety of settlement patterns created an array of practices. In the Central Appalachians, which is the main emphasis of this book, the cultural practice of conjure encompasses West African slave traditions, Native American beliefs, Scottish, Irish, German, and regionally Italian customs. While it may seem like these various practices wouldn't mesh, The self-sufficiency and, frankly, the abject poverty of the region forced these mountaineers to utilize what was around them. Spell components were common household items, such as eggshells, tobacco, dusts and dirts from culturally significant locations, and parts of symbolically powerful animals. The people who did these practices didn't really have a term for what they did. They didn't really even have titles, especially not the title of witch which has a very specific connotation. Often, they were just called healers, teller of tales, power doctors, conjure folk, or yarb doctors, a title thrust upon them by uppity Christian townsfolk. The author, Jake Richards, whose working name is Dr. Buck, is a practicing conjure worker who comes from a long line of gifted individuals. His pawpaw Oscar was a water witch, a more modern term, not to be confused with the previous statement about witches. His papa Trivet could cure thrush, stop bleeding, and blow out burns. His mama's seventh daughter, following the same tradition as the seventh son, is a natural-born healer, and his nana has the sight and prophetic dreams. So Jake is more than familiar with the ins and outs of Appalachian Conjure. 
His motivation for writing this book, according to his introduction, is to help continue this art which is slowly being lost as a result of its mostly oral history. First and foremost, there is not a single right way to practice conjure. Folk from different backgrounds and different regions have their own unique techniques and components for their work. This is one of the greatest strengths of this type of spell work, using what you have on hand. Think of it as a practical application of Agrippa's principle of correspondences. An object, with a specific purpose, can stand in place of an intangible concept. More simply, like attracts like. For example, eggshells are used for protective purposes because the shell protects and contains the developing chicken. The next aspect of conjure is the use of the Bible as a spell book. In many instances, the Bible was the only book our ancestors owned. Regardless of religious beliefs, a person should be able to find an applicable passage for whatever working they are enacting. Despite the reliance on the Bible, there was no prohibition on baleful magics. At least, not directly. Rather than follow something akin to the Wiccan read, conjure workers adhere to the law of justice. Consider it eye for an eye, or a more literal take on do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Retaliation for wrongs levied against you is acceptable, as long as it is done in a similar scope or scale. Additionally, there is a long tradition of causing spells to rebound on the caster. This is something to keep in mind when targeting a person. Be sure that you can deal with your own spell should it come back to you. The final aspect is the veneration of the ancestors. Many people think this refers only to family members in your direct lineage, but it encompasses the spirits of any past individuals whom the worker seeks out. This includes people referenced in the Bible, and not just Jesus and Mary either. Some practices call upon Solomon, Saul, or even Moses. Again, it depends on who would be most applicable for the work. Let's say you're trying to boost your chances of a successful hunt. You could call upon Nimrod from the Bible, but he may look at you, a complete stranger, and choose not to help. Of course, the spirit of your great uncle, who was never without venison in the pantry, may be more inclined to help you in your goal. These are all aspects of conjure in general, but what makes Appalachian conjure unique? Part of it is the land itself. The Appalachian Mountains are old. Like, really old. No, even older than what you may be thinking. This land didn't just see dinosaurs. It saw the first dinosaurs. When the continent of Pangaea broke apart, the Appalachians were already ancient. Continental drift tore pieces away, forming the Scottish Highlands, Scandinavia, and the Atlas Mountain Range in Morocco. They may no longer be the tallest peaks, but they are easily the oldest. That also means that the terrain can be some of the toughest, most unforgiving land for people to live on. The phrase, a terrible beauty, is quite applicable. The area can have a primal captivation even today. This rough land limited transportation for quite some time, so settlers had to be more than a little self-reliant. It makes sense that when your living situation is so tenuous, 
you would seek out any advantage that you could. In some of the more untamed portions, you may even feel as if you are being watched, as if the very land itself were observing you. Truthfully, you may not be wrong. This is why the land is so important in this practice. Certain locations hold power, and pieces of those locations can grant attributes associated with those areas. Caverns, crossroads, shorelines, graveyards, and many other places are nexus points for magic. That said, don't forget to leave an offering for the spirits of the land if you remove something. Modern Appalachians leave offerings of tobacco, whiskey, or moonshine, or of silver coins. These offerings are even more important if you are selecting a place to do your magic. You are forging a working relationship with a manifestation of the land itself. Its disposition will change with time and the seasons, so it may take several interactions before you are accepted. Land spirits are often subtle in their responses, so you will have to get used to looking for signs. Our ancestors were used to detecting subtlety in the land, an attribute that comes from intimately knowing the land itself. Omens were an everyday occurrence for the old-timers. Some were used to determine inclement weather, some the disposition of livestock, and some were more malevolent, omens of death. Irish immigrants brought with them the legend of the banshee. If you heard the cry, it meant that a loved one would soon die. The English and the Scots had tales of the black dog, who menaced those whose demise was foretold. Of course, in Appalachia, death isn't an end. It's a transition. Once you pass, you join the ranks of the ancestors. This doesn't mean you're forgotten, though. Quite the opposite. Your memory is carried on with offerings left at the grave, a place set at the dining table, or sometimes an honored place on the mantel or fireplace. Why are ancestors given such offerings? Because spirits are able to go places and do things that the living cannot. Some even grow to be guardians of the family. Getting their help isn't as simple as placing their photo on display. Yes, photographs have become a staple of the practice of ancestry worship, but a picture is only a tool. Veneration is an action. Some people have dedicated cups and plates for sacrificial offerings to the spirits. A special shot glass to leave whiskey for Grandpa, a favorite perfume for Great Aunt Mildred, or a pinch of tobacco for their second cousin, twice removed, on their mother's side. The idea is to leave an offering of items the person enjoyed in life, their favorite worldly trappings, if you will. Finally, and this applies to any location where veneration is done, keep things clean. It seems obvious, but dusting a framed photo, pulling weeds around a headstone, and refreshing a sacrificed bottle of aftershave are all important parts of the process. Keeping things fresh and clean is a way to show that you care. This practice is still done in my area in West Virginia, where every spring, families get together and go to the cemetery to clean the plots of loved ones. Now that we have a bit of background, it's time to get into the details of the actual craft. How do you cast the spells, and what purposes are they done for? Traditionally, these spells were done for a wide range of things. Love, protection, diverting the eyes of the law, or even just something to help avoid the evil eye. All of these are aspects of traditional Appalachian conjure. 
there are as many ways to do the magic as there are reasons to do it. In our first example, let's look at a ritual for healing. For this specific spell, you will need a penny, a white candle, blessed olive oil, aluminum foil, and a plate. To start, place a layer of foil on the surface of the plate. Next, affix the penny to the bottom of the candle. The penny should be heads up, so when attached to the candle, the tail side will be showing. Now the easiest way to do this is to heat up the wax on the bottom of the candle and press it against the penny. Next, anoint the candle with a bit of the blessed oil. If the patient is present, place the tip of the candle, the wick end, into their navel. Take some time to pray for the disease to be drawn into the candle. The foil-covered plate is then placed behind the patient's left shoulder, where the candle is lit and left to burn to completion. As soon as the candle burns to totality, the patient spits into the wax. The sides of the foil are folded inward, closing in the wax as it dries. This bundle must then be buried beneath the roots of a tree or at the corner of a crossroads. Let's break this down a bit. First, let's look at the final destination of this spell. Tree roots are binding, holding in the illness. Beyond that, this is a practice known as transference, where you are moving an ailment from a person to another object. The alternative is the crossroads. Crossroads are powerful locations associated with drawing things in as well as sending them away. Essentially, by burying this package there, you're telling the disease to go away. Now, why would the patient spit into the wax? This is similar to the principle of transference. The patient's saliva is creating an energetic link between themselves and the spell. The most common pop culture example is the use of hair on a voodoo doll. In this instance, you are drawing a link between the spell and something that is happening internally with the patient. What about the candle? Does the color really matter? According to earlier chapters, no, not really. Most candles that our ancestors were using were dipped taper candles. Recently, modern manufacturing has given practitioners a large array of options. White candles tend to be the least expensive, and frugality seems to always be an aspect of conjure. And the coin on the bottom? Pennies, especially the older ones still made from copper, are used for curative practices. This could stem from the fact that copper has extremely powerful antimicrobial properties. A more recent example of pennies being used in folk medicine is a remedy for bee stings. Basically, you hold a penny on top of the sting for 15 minutes to lessen the pain of the sting itself. While there is no medical basis behind this, perhaps a placebo effect takes place. As an aside, if you are stung and you have an allergy, please... Don't try the penny trick as a first response. I shouldn't have to make this disclaimer, but here we are. Now one aspect of this spell that I really can't speak towards is the action of placing the candle in the patient's navel. That part really is not mentioned anywhere in the book. I'm sure there is some sort of association there, I'm just not sure what it is. Is there a way to increase the strength of this spell? Using techniques from this book? Yes, there is. First, you could core out a portion of the bottom of the candle, pack it full of herbs, and close it with hot wax and the penny. You could carve the patient's name into the candle before anointing it. Finally, 
you could probably substitute the saliva with blood, although I wouldn't recommend this. One thing to keep in mind is that added complexity increases chances for failure. Now let's look at something a bit simpler, a protection charm. This object, called a jack, is what most people would recognize as a mojo bag or a charm bag. These bags are usually made from cotton or flannel and are sewn shut. This one calls for nine yarrow leaves, three pennies, and dust from your home. The pennies are for good fortune, and the dust is for a safe return to your home. What is the significance of the yarrow leaves? As the author states, the uses of yarrow are varied, though one aspect is to be used as a protective charm. The quantity has a bit to do with the Holy Trinity. Any multiple of three is considered to be a sacred number, though usually this ends with the number 12. After that, they seem to lose significance. When you break down the components, this charm provides luck, protection, and an added kick to get you back to the home. Now that you have an idea of what is in the book, I want to take a moment to talk about how the book itself is written. Do you remember the question I posed at the beginning of the episode? An Appalachian answer is almost always a story. This book is written along those same lines. It's not a typical metaphysical text. It's a narrative. You get a lot more of why as opposed to how. Whether or not you like this style of writing will heavily influence how much you enjoy this book. Don't get me wrong, I like how this book is written. I've lived in the Appalachians my entire life, so I can say that this writing style adds an air of authenticity. If you think that you'll be able to flip to a set page and get all the information about a single topic, well, you may be disappointed. If you want a survey of a unique cultural tradition, you will absolutely love Backwoods Witchcraft. There's no article review this week. Frankly, nothing caught my attention, and I ran out of time anyway. Links to the book and the author's website are listed in the show notes. Esoteric Book Club can be found on Facebook and Instagram at Esoteric Book Club. You can also write to me at jason at esotericbookclub.org. Intro and outro music are courtesy of Sarah Rudy and her band Hello June. Their music can be found at bandcamp.com and wearehellojune.com. If you like what you hear, please leave me a review, and until next time, remember, stay weird. <laughs>